Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the Ontario Legislature returned yesterday. What happened at Queen's Park and what are they going to be discussing in the city? Well, we'll discuss that. According to a new analysis by Canada's National Observer, the Ford government has used ministerial zoning orders to override environmental concerns in 14 cases since 2018. Emma McIntosh wrote the piece and she joins us on the program. And what is the state of federal politics as the House of Commons gets back to work? It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's talk about what's going on politically, and uh, we'll get to Ottawa in a couple of minutes, but uh, it's always uh, entertaining, if nothing else, uh, to see the fun and frivolity that goes on during question period at Queen's Park these days. And uh, yesterday was no exception. The uh, NDP, who are the official opposition, of course, uh, wanted to introduce some legislation, uh, which kind of got a thumbs down, shall we say, from the Ford government. As a matter of fact, uh, Doug Ford and the PCs are ignoring calls to bring in paid sick days during the pandemic. Global's Sandy Salerno has the details. There was a bill tabled back in December called the Stay at Home If You're Sick Act. It would give employees seven days of paid emergency leave and another three unpaid days of leave every year. Lots of people pushing for the immediate passage of this bill today, but it was shot down. And Premier Ford had this message for NDP leader Andrea Horvath. Stop getting people confused. There are sick days. Ford says they already have a great system in place thanks to the federal program, which offers up 10 paid sick days. We aren't going to duplicate it and and continue to double dip into the taxpayers' pockets when there's a billion dollars, 1.1 billion, sitting there. Instead, Ford says he will ask the feds to perhaps double their contribution to the program. Sandy Salerno, Global News. I just love the way they put spin on this stuff. So let's uh, let's try to sift through what happened yesterday. And uh, to do that, uh, always a pleasure to bring back uh, Richard Brennan, uh, former Queen's Park journalist for the Toronto Star for many, many years. Badger, thanks so much for the time. Uh, it, but it was business as usual, I guess, in a very unusual time when uh, when they finally got together in the legislature yesterday. Well, it was. You know, they as as always. I mean, the whole entire you know time is practically focused on. COVID matters, you know, related COVID matters, including the uh, the uh, paid leave. Uh, so, I mean, it the whole entire focus it has been for a long time is on the pandemic and how it's going to be handled in one way or the other. Uh, I I don't know that much gets done other than that, quite frankly. Well, I'm not sure much gets done with that either. <laughs> it seems to be the problem. Uh, and, and let's let's talk a little bit about the sick days then, because this is a, a, a bill that the NDP wanted to get passed. Actually, there's three different pieces of legislation that Andrea Horvath talked about yesterday. The one was the sick bill, of course. Uh, the other was uh, a ban on evictions during the pandemic. And uh, the other, of course, had to do with uh, more uh, individual time for long-term care facilities, none of which are going to go anywhere, because the government, of course, has the majority, and uh, and they don't want to do that. Well, they're all things that they should be looking at. I, you know, anything that improves the situation in long-term care homes. I mean, I don't know why that should be even a second thought. The government should do everything in its power to improve conditions there, and any kind of legislation that would do that should be passed. Um, and get back in getting on to the uh, the paid sick days. I know that there's a you know a federal program that exists, but that doesn't stop Ontario from passing a program that allows people to be paid so many sick days, and particularly during a pandemic when we don't want people coming to work who are sick. It's pretty clear to me, and I I don't understand why the government's really 
you know, dug in their heels on this. It, it, it just uh, surprises me, <laughs> to say the least. Well, it, but it, it's, it comes down to money. And I, I was surprised to hear, I guess I wasn't really surprised, to hear Ford's comments about this yesterday. As when I've talked to him about this when he's been on the program, and, and it's a jurisdictional thing. They admitted the fact that the federal program had some gaps in it that, and, and people were suffering as a result. Uh, yeah, there is a sick leave program, which, by the way, is really provincial responsibility. Anything to do with labor relations and, and, and that sort of stuff is, is a provincial responsibility. Uh, so to simply say, well, it's the Fed's job to do that is, is incorrect right off the bat. Uh, but you will have to have so many days off before you even qualify for that federal program. That's right. And if you have to take a day off, you know, if I feel crappy tomorrow and think I have symptoms, uh, and I said I need at least a day to go and get tested, I don't get paid for that. Uh, and what this bill is proposing to do, and it's, by the way, it's not just happening in Ontario, other provinces are having the same debate, is fill that gap and just say, look, Jesse, you can take a day or two off or whatever the case might be, or if your child is sick and you have to stay home with them, you don't have to miss a day's pay. Uh, and, and when I had the minister on about this, the minister of labor on about this uh, just a couple of weeks ago on the program, he, he admitted that there was gaps, but he said, yeah, we're going to ask the federal government to put more money into that. Well, that's not their responsibility. It's the province's responsibility. So they're, they're really playing name games here. Well, it's, it, you know, Bill, it's always been easier to, you know, blame another level of government for what it did do or didn't do. This is, this is, a, this is a chance for, I, I think, for the Ford government to take matters in its own hands and, and say, we want people to stay at home if they're sick, be it with COVID or otherwise. We don't want our workforces to be coming down in some cases where entire plants are, you know, proving positive with COVID. But they just, they, they get blinders on with certain issues, and particularly if it, if it uh, helps workers, and I don't, I don't understand that because I don't think, I don't think Doug Ford's opposed to people's, you know, workers' rights and that. But he, in this case, it just, it is truly having blinders on. He and he should get the message. And I don't know why the people, you know, or his members in his caucus and his cabinet aren't pushing him towards this instead of just saying, you know, oh no, we can't do that. That's a federal matter. Well, it isn't just a federal matter. It's a provincial matter, and that they should take that into consideration and do something about it. It's not just a minor issue. We're not talking about $14 or $15 an hour you know, here, uh, as has been discussed in the past for minimum wage. We're talking about a major issue of people staying home so they don't transmit COVID-19. Simple well, especially that. especially with this this third wave and this variance that well, we're talking about. Good, yeah. this, I mean, this, that's this it's pretty wave. scary stuff. Oh, I mean, you just the more we're we're learning more. I think from the federal government on this on this uh, uh, variant. You know, we're talking about. I don't think there's going to be any question, and this isn't a scaremongering. This is this is fact based on science that there's going to, this variant is going to be even more virulent than than previous and it's going to it, the third wave's going to hit us i'm afraid like a hammer and i'm not i'm not suggesting that we you know we shouldn't we should backtrack on what's been done in terms of le- letting some of the stores and that stay open i think that was a 
they had to do something. Yeah. It's a gamble. I understand that. I think everybody understands that. But you've got to have let the businesses open up, even if it might be just temporarily, so they There's... can actually have some income instead of relying entirely on federal or provincial handouts. So if they're going to do that, and I, I agree. I think, you know, the ski hills are open, the businesses are open again, uh, within certain parameters. You know, there, there are still rules to follow. Oh, of course. Uh, but, and we're, for the most part, we're behaving ourselves. I mean, we are social distancing. We are wearing masks for the most part. Uh, we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, but we're expecting the government to put these other things in place. And, and this is what I question this. And what, and, and you know, for instance, you, you, one of the things that uh, the NDP brought up yesterday was about the, the, the amount of care that each individual resident in long-term care facilities gets. Uh, Doug Ford has been promising uh, for a year now that he's going to do everything in his power to fix this. All they're doing, they're, they're studying it still. And the report of the commission that they appointed here, they're, they're, comes out like at the end of March or April or something like that. Why not act now? I mean, these are things that they can do right now. And I'm wondering if there's a, a partisan bent to this that, that's really bothering me. And I, I want to take you back to uh, just after Doug Ford became premier. Do you remember he had a, a meeting, a closed-door meeting with the business leaders in the Hamilton area? Uh, and the media were not allowed in there, but I, I knew a few people that were in the meeting, and I got this story confirmed that he basically told them, because there's obviously there was a wish list there, and he said, you guys aren't going to get anything more if you keep electing NDPers to Queen's Park. He said, you know, that's, that's not going to work for you guys. So he's got a problem with that. And all these issues we've just talked about here, whether it's the, the staffing at long-term care facilities, uh, whether it's the people that are getting evicted because uh, they're, they're, they're falling behind because they maybe lost their jobs during the pandemic, these are all people that, you know, the, well, they, they vote NDP anyway, so, you know, we're not going to do anything for them. We'll do stuff for other people, but we're not going to do people. And, and, and I know he's not stating that every time he says it, but I'm wondering if there's a mindset here that just kind of oversees everything and all of these decisions that they're making right now. Well, I w you know, I know every government has been, uh, you know, they've been responsible for and accused of doing this, regard regardless of what political stripe is it. They they won't give to Hamilton. You know, the Liberal government wouldn't give to Hamilton because they had too many NDPers. Or you know, and this has been going on forever. But this is not the time to be pulling that. And I won't say it on air. This business, because it's, we're in the midst of a pandemic. Political stripes should have nothing to do what what is necessary to improve the health and safety of this province. It should, I, should have nothing to do with it. You know, when times are good, if you want to talk politics, you know, and, you know, and, and you know, say, well, the one city, you know, is such and such party and we, we shouldn't be doing this or that, you know, that's, been, that's gone on forever. But yeah. now is not the time to be doing that. Absolutely, well, and we saw some bad examples of that. I mean, and I'm not trying to draw a parallel between uh, Donald Trump and, and Doug Ford, but Trump was famous for that. You know, it was red states, blue states, and the Republican states, Republican governors always got the better deal than the, than their Democratic governors, and that's just wrong. And I think one of the, the things that Biden talked about during that campaign was, "I'm going to be the president for all the people, even if you didn't vote for me." Uh, and even if you don't believe that, you should tr at least try to be that kind of individual leader. Uh, and, and I don't like the way that some of these decisions seem to be influenced by partisan politics. It's just, as you said, this is not the time for that sort of stuff. Well, yeah, it, 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 it's gone on in the past. I once sensed, said to Bill Davis, we were, we were chatting one day, and he said, oh, this is when I worked for the Windsor Star, and he said, oh, I hear you're from Windsor. And I said, 
You know, I didn't call him Bill Carr. I said, Premier, you wouldn't even know where Windsor is. Doesn't doesn't Ontario end at Chatham? <laughs> but so this is, you know, this has gone on. But again, I repeat myself again, this is no time for playing that uh, partisan uh, business because it's, it's so serious of what's going on. And Ontario, it should be Ontario first, not the not the Conservative Party first, Ontario first. Everything that's done by that government should be with a mind that it's to help every town, village, city, whatever in this province to make sure that they're protected and getting the best care, health care, whatever they can. And it should have nothing to do with politics. I, I, it's people say I'm being a bit of a Pollyanna here, but no, believe me, politics should not rear its head here at all. It, the focus should be on looking after the province, period. Well, and every now and then, they maybe maybe they slip up, and they do stuff like that. During the first pandemic and the first shutdown, which is almost a year ago now, uh, there was a, a ban on, on evictions because people were falling behind because everybody saw the, the, the sense in that. But they let that lapse, and now they won't renew it again. Why are things any better? People are in more precarious situations than they were a year ago, and, and yet he won't only them a hand. I, I don't get this. As for the long-term care facilities, I mean, for the love of God, I mean, we know there's going to be a third wave right now, and we know that the overwhelming majority of people that die from COVID are in long-term care facilities. Why isn't he putting every pound... Every, every resource he possibly can into trying to stem the tide in long-term care facilities instead of studying it. Well, that's that's the big question, isn't it? Why why is not more being done for long-term care, guy Bill? If you and I could answer that, we'd be off to the races here. But it's I think they're got so many irons in the fire right now and trying to put out fires, I should say. They they should they're, they're you know they're trying to do a little bit here and a little bit there, but the focus should be a major focus should be on long term care. We've seen what happens there. We've seen what happens to our elderly. We, we've seen them die, in any case prematurely because of of the COVID, and every effort should be made to put in protections. That it, this doesn't, you know, if we do get a third wave, that it doesn't repeat what's happened in the past. And that's, you know, the number of people who, in, in long-term care homes, who die, overshadowing the general public. It's, it, it's, it's mind-boggling, really. Uh, you know, they, they study these things to death. We already know what the problems were, because most of these problems in long-term care existed before the pandemic, and the pandemic has only made them worse. And it's 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 not rocket science to do this. I mean, you know, Quebec said, okay, we need more staff, and we need to pay them better, and we need to train them. They did that in the course of the summer, during July and August. We say in Ontario, first of all, we haven't even got the final report yet, but they said, yeah, probably within the next two and a half to three years, we'll probably get up to speed on where we should be. Why the delay? I don't understand that. Well, I mean, is it money? Uh, you know, I... Yeah, sure it is. It, it sure, it sure, you know, it shouldn't be. Look, we have spent billions of dollars mm-hmm. on, on, you know, in trying to uh, build a wall between COVID and this province. And What's a little more? I know, you know, the conservatives will say you can't, you know, can't spend money you don't have. But what's a little more? Every effort should be made to protect the long-term care homes. And 
if you got it, you got to find the money somewhere. If you got to, you know, spend money, I guess that you don't have. Well, here's a good cause, and do it. It's not a matter of that we don't know what the problem is. We know what the problem is, so deal with it. Hope so. Uh, we'll see what happens. Today's day two of this, and we'll see exactly uh, what the government's going to oh, do and how they're going to respond. Before we go, yeah, I wanted to wish you a happy birthday. I know you're oh, turning thank 30, you. 39 again. I am, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm counting my years in Celsius now instead of... Uh, <laughs> well, look, buddy, have a good one. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Badger. Really appreciate it. Okay. Take care. Richard Bye-bye. Brennan, of course, former Queen's Park journalist with the Toronto Star. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. In our conversation just before the break there with uh, Richard Brennan, we were talking about some of the uh, pieces of legislation at Queen's Park, uh, and we were wondering aloud uh, whether or not partisan politics and favoritism came into play with some of the decisions that were being made. And I know people are going to react to that and say, oh, there you go again, knocking the government. But, uh, you know, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, and to add fuel to that fire... There is a fabulous piece that was uh, published. I'll get to that in a couple of seconds, but it's it's to do with the Ford government and the way that they're doing business. It's in the National Observer, Canada's National Observer, and uh, Emma McIntosh is the author of that article, and uh, she joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Emma, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be with us today. Thanks for having me on. Great piece of journalism. Uh, boy, you did a lot of spade work to get the facts and, the, and all of this. And uh, essentially, for folks that have not seen the piece yet, and I encourage them to go to the webpage and get a look at it later on, uh, the Doug Ford government has used controversial special orders to allow developments on sites that involving environmental concerns uh, 14 times since 2018. And uh, that's really the tip of the iceberg. Talk to us about how you came to this and, and the research you did on it, Emma. Yeah, so my focus uh, most of the time is on the environment. And so these orders came to my attention because there were a couple of them that were really controversial because they were uh, allowing developments to basically pave over wetlands that were supposed to be protected. Um, So development was not supposed to be allowed. And I felt like I wasn't getting the full picture. There are 38 of these orders that have been issued by the Ford government since 2018, And I wanted to see how they were affecting the environment overall. So I went through a million municipal planning documents and a million um, (laughs) basically local news articles to get that full picture. And then once I had it, I identified 14 sites that involved environmental concerns. And I looked at the political donation records of the developers behind them. And how, how difficult was it to connect those dots? You know, a lot of this stuff is right out of the open. It just takes yeah. time um, and a little bit of willingness to dig. <laughs> uh, now, we, we've had discussions on the program about this in the past, and it has to do with some other pieces of legislation that the government has proposed and, and actually passed. And these are omnibus bills. They kind of tucked them in there uh, about declawing a lot of the regulations. Uh, there's concern about the Green Belt. And that goes all the way back to the to the campaign that, where Doug Ford got elected, doesn't it, when he was kind of musing out loud to some developers that, yeah, maybe maybe we can start building on, on the Green Belt uh, through the, the province of Ontario. And, and people just went crazy, and he backed off on that. But he's talked about it since. And, and when you look at some of the, the statistics that you've included in the piece here, uh, you got to wonder where their mindset is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of these uh, these folks who were pushing forward then to open up the Green Belt for development and who are pushing them now, presumably, are people who have donated a lot of money to support his political ambitions. Um, about $150,000 from developers linked to these orders went to Ontario Proud. 
And we all know that they were a third-party group that supported the progressive conservatives in 2018. Another $160,000 went directly to the, um, or sorry, yeah, another $100,000 went to the actual progressive conservative party. A lot of them to Doug Ford himself and his run to be a candidate and his run to become leader of the party. So loyalty matters in Doug Ford's world. Um, this is, wouldn't be the first time that we've seen people who are longtime donors or longtime friends receive um, a favor, which is, you know, not to imply that there's a, a quid pro quo here. The government denies that these donation records had any factor and the companies denied as well. Um, but I think it's interesting to look at those connections. Yeah, there's there's a little wordsmithing that goes on here when the government responded to, to some of the stuff that you talked about here. And and you point out in the piece, I mean, to, to be fair, uh, a lot of these donors uh, also made contributions to, to to the Liberals and probably other political parties in different elections in the past. Uh, so it's it's not as if they're exclusive necessarily to the Progressive Conservative Party. But let's face it, I mean, the reason they make the donation is, is you know, they're kind of hoping, hey, when if you win and we knock on your door, we'd like, you know, to know that you guys are going to support what we want to do. And it, it, whether it's a, 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 a major project, a housing development, warehouse, whatever it might be, uh, sometimes you've got to stick handle through these things. And, and this order that they, they've talked about, the, the MZOs, uh, is it's it's a tool that's been in play as you point out of the piece but these guys are not just using it i mean they're they're overusing it i mean uh, when you look at the number of times that they've actually used this this piece here it's uh, uh the numbers are, are staggering quite frankly about how many times they've actually gone to bat for people like this uh they've issued 37 of them since 2018 uh the previous liberal government issued 16 of them but that was in the 15 years that they were in power so maybe one a year and these guys just seem to be going overboard yeah I think that's a really crucial thing to point out because uh, these orders, MZOs, they're not in and of themselves something bad or evil, right? They can be used for really helpful purposes. Um, you know, one of them was used to enable the Pan Am Games to go on in Toronto. Mm -hmm. One of them was used to relocate Elliott Lake's grocery store when the roof collapsed of their mall and the town needed a place to buy food. So they can be a really valuable tool. The problem is they're unappealable. And so they're viewed as very undemocratic and something that should be used very sparingly and only on projects where there's almost near universal agreement that it's a good idea. And we just don't see that with a lot of the projects that the, uh, the Ford government has used them for. Well, and let's let's talk about the the methodology that's used here because I know that uh, when you asked the government and, and their representatives, you know whether or not the the donations actually were a, a, a factor in, in how these decisions were made, and they say no. Uh, the only people that actually ask about these are the municipalities, but that's, that, that, that's that's still lobbying. I mean, you know, because the donations are still at play there. Uh, and if I'm a if I'm a developer, uh, I'm going to go to that councilman or that mayor and say, look, at I need this, and you know, let's follow the path there too. Maybe that developer made a donation to that mayor uh, and so it goes down the road uh, you know the, the old cliche money talks seems to be coming into play here yeah i hear you and in fact we actually see that in one of the most prominent case studies um which you might have heard of it's about this cluster of wetlands in pickering yep. um right now there's a development going in there called durham live it's kind of like this casino super entertainment complex and it's going right on top of a protected wetland. Now, yes, this was requested by the municipality, which got a request in turn from the developers, a company called Triple Group. 
But Triple Group also donated extensively to the mayor of Pickering's campaign and to his counterpart in Ajax, although the Ajax mayor is, is very against the project. Now, both of the mayors have said that the donations did not sway them, that they, you know, they have their opinions and that's that. But, you know, just because a municipality asks for something doesn't mean that the province has to give it to them, right? No, we, you know, we all know that. I mean, you know, our listeners in London and in Hamilton can attest to that because councils have reared their heads and said, no, you can't do that. Nice idea, great project, but you can't build it there uh, for zoning reasons or environmental reasons more often than not. Uh, and one of the partners in all of that, as you point out in the piece, used to be conservation authorities in all of these areas that would say they would have commenting ability in all of these things. And the government, the Ford government's essentially taken that, that tool away. They basically said, conservation authorities, you don't have any play at all here. As a matter of fact, they, they, they've taken a lot of the power of conservation authorities away, uh, much to the chagrin, of course, of pe- people that have environmental concerns about some of these projects. That's right. Um, before a conservation authority, which um, you know is this agency that kind of oversees development in waterways, they were able to step in and say no, even if there was a ministerial zoning order, they could say absolutely not. This is not a safe development. We do not support something going in over a protected wetland. It's protected for a reason. Um, but in December, the provincial government made some steps to water that down. And now, if there's an MZO issued for a project, the conservation authority has to say yes, even if they don't like it, even if they think it's a flood risk. And, and the, there's, there's a, an educational element to this, too. I mean, I sat on the Hamilton Conservation Authority a number of years ago when I was on city council in Hamilton. Uh, and I, I, it was an education for me. I mean, I learned an awful lot about things like watersheds and, and a number of other things and how a development can have an impact on, on, on a, not just in the specific area, but on a much wider area, of course, because uh, there, especially here in southern Ontario, I mean, there's water everywhere, underground, everywhere else. Uh, and we had a very controversial project years ago here called the expressway the red hill valley expressway uh, that went through about four or five different uh, development aspects of it uh, because of that and the environmental concerns that the the conservation authorities talked about basically demanded that there be kind of a redesign of that and it finally got done and the conservation authority didn't say don't build it they said if you're going to build it do it this way and oftentimes it 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 costs more money to do it the way that they're recommending. And and right now, the Conservation Authority, as you say, has no authority to, to make any comment on this at all, uh, which really kind of gives developers free reign here. I think you've hit the nail right on the head there. Um, and you also made a really important point about how things are connected. You know, it goes back to municipalities not getting to just approve things willy-nilly if they're bad for the overall environment. Take the green belt as one example, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Ford has said over and over, he won't touch the green belt. He heard us loud and clear. Yeah. People do not like it. Um, problem is, if you are fast-tracking developments on land that's just outside the green belt, which has happened in several cases using these zoning orders, then you're actually degrading the land of the green belt as well because these landscapes are connected. Water flows through both. It doesn't just stop where the, the line of protected land ends, you know, it, it keeps going. And development on one part of a waterway will affect other parts of a waterway. Municipalities can only see one piece of that, right? Like one little bit that's within their purview. But the province is supposed to be making decisions in the greater good. They are supposed to be looking at the whole watershed or the whole green belt or the fact that we've lost the vast majority of our wetlands already. And the ones that we have left are very precious. So 
I think it's worth asking whether this is the right way to approve these projects and and whether there might be a better way to go about it. Well, there was a a better way, and it wasn't perfect, but, I mean, it seems as if some of the checks and balances that have been in place for generations, really, uh, are are now being one by one picked off by the Ford government here to to make things easier. And and as you point out in the piece, I mean, I think it bears repeating, uh, we're not saying development is bad. We're not saying these are evil people. I mean, you know, we need that sort of growth. We need that sort of economic development. But, you know, you've got to play within the rules and and understand that there's going to be, uh, with any project, there's going to be some sort of ramifications to it. And uh, we've put checks and balances in with conservation authorities and, by the way, with local councils uh, that also have some oversight into a lot of these things. And basically, the, the power seems to have gravitated now right back to Queen's Park that says we will have the ultimate say here. And I've talked to mayors around this area and certainly to conservation authorities, and, and they're apoplectic about this and say, hey, wait a second, we this is our area. Uh, you know, we should have a say here. And the government's basically saying, just relax, we, we got this, we're doing this. Yeah, one of the um, the political critics I talked to in my story called it uh, Municipal Affairs Minister Steve Clark's magic wand. You know, he points at a spot and says Shazam, and then there's a new building there. Um, I think there are questions to be asked about whether this is an overreach, whether local planning processes are being overruled. You know, the government has said that it is doing this stuff because the way that development is done in Ontario is too slow, and developers say that too. They can be waiting many, many years for something to get approved, especially if there is an appeal to a tribunal, which can take a really long time. And, and you know, I think that makes sense, too. It's just, I think there's something between that very delay-intensive system and this Shazam system, you know? I think that, and I, and I think conservation authorities were on board with having some reforms introduced as well, just not a complete defanging. Well, and and you're right. I mean, when, you know, we said there was a, a system of checks and balances in place. It wasn't perfect, uh, but it did devolve into that situation, and that's why even the the mayors that we've talked to on the program over the last number of years have said, "Look, you, you've got to do something about this because there are too many loopholes." And we've, the point got to it got to the point rather where a lot of developers were just saying, "I go before the local council uh, to get my project done." And he says, "I don't care what they say because I'm just going to appeal it anyway, and I'll win at the appeal." Uh, and they knew that, so it, it kind of defanged everybody in the process. But do they always take into consideration the impact it's going to have on the surrounding area? And you point out some of the things that I I, I would hope that we all are aware of these days, Emma. And that it's it's not just hey, you know, Joni Mitchell, you know, they pay paradise and put up a parking lot. Uh, it's great to say hey, this is great. They're building a new warehouse facility. That means new jobs. But what what impact is it having on the watershed? What about endangered species in some of those wetlands? Uh, what about farmland? I mean, we're talking about buying local and and, and growing food for our our future generations, uh, if we're going to pave everything over and put buildings up, that's the, that's less agricultural land. I mean, that has to be part of the discussion, doesn't it? I think it should be. And, you know, even beyond that, these empty fields that developers see as um, as a boon and possibly a, a big piece of value if it's upzoned, they're also a carbon sink, right? And yep. if we're paving that over, we're losing that at a time when we need it most as the climate crisis is accelerating. I think that This is being set up as a binary, right? It's either job creation and economic benefit, which is kind of how the PCs are pitching it, and then there's environmental protection. But it really doesn't have to be that way. There are ways to do development right, and there are ways to incorporate green principles, I think. And there are a lot of folks doing that. 
um, it just doesn't seem like a lot of them received ministerial zoning orders. Well, and I guess the frustration that, that a lot of people are feeling these days is uh, if there did, if there was a, a, a need for reform in the way things went before us. That, that's understandable. But you bring everybody to the table. It sounds as if they're, they're only listening to one side here when they're making these judgments. I think that that's, that's a fair point. I think um, in the interest of speed, sometimes elements of consultation get lost. There are some projects on the list of MZOs where the community was engaged and they really, really wanted it. And that was genuinely just being held up by something that um, that could have been worked around, you know, or that an MZO would enable. That's fine. That makes sense. But things get better with public consultation, right? Um, that's the point. People are supposed to have input and tell the government what they don't know. Um, and I think that's one of the worries about this is that we don't know what we don't know. And without doing full assessments and without hearing people out, how can we? I'm glad, by the way, in the piece that you talked to David Crombie about this, because that's a perspective I'm, I think is so very important to include in this. And for those who may not remember, David Crombie, of course, former mayor of Toronto, progressive conservative MP, too, by the way, when he left municipal politics, he was in the Mulroney government. So he has a conservative, a small-c conservative and a big-c conservative. But he was also the chair of the Greenbelt Council for the longest time. And he resigned, and we talked about that in December when he did, basically because because he was opposed to the attitude that the Ford government was taking towards these issues. And and he had some pretty damning things to say about the way things are going now. He did. He pointed out that, you know, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of these landscapes are connected. But he also referred to the way that the Ford government has been using these MZOs as weaponizing them. Um, he said that they're short-circuiting the local planning process, and they actually aren't solving the core problem which is that, you know, we do need to figure out a better way to approach development, just not by gutting the entire process. He compared it to kicking in your car to get the tires aligned, and then the guy just takes off the tires and gives you back your car. You know, like, the, the tires are, <laughs> are taken care of now, but it, it doesn't really work as a car anymore. And changing the fundamental functioning of, of these systems with one unilateral directive it might not be the best way to go about it. It was an interesting perspective on that, and uh, and, and the reason I, I'm glad you brought Crombie into this is because he's a conservative, but he was also always has been uh, very environmentally conscious, and, uh, and and it can happen. This doesn't have to be a partisan political issue. It's supposed to be an, an issue about you know what's best for the community at, at large, uh, and it's it's a great read for people that have not seen it yet. Uh, just check it out. It's in the, the National Observer. Uh, Doug Ford donors benefit as fast track developments override environmental concerns. Uh, Again, Emma, thank you so much for the great work that you did on this and the great piece, and thanks for spending some time with us today. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Take care. Emma McIntosh, of course, from the National Observer. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. House of Commons got back to work yesterday, such as it is, uh, because of the pandemic, but uh, it was a very hectic session. Uh, and there was uh, some new legislation that was discussed as well, and that had to do with gun control. That's something the government had been talking about doing for quite some time. And uh, Prime Minister Trudeau says Canadians called for bold steps on gun control. He says his government is taking action, allowing municipalities to ban handguns under a new bill that was announced. Now, the bill would also increase criminal penalties for gun smuggling and trafficking, and it goes further against what the government considers assault-style weapons. We will move forward with a buyback program in the coming months 
and complete the prohibition to ensure these weapons cannot be legally used, transferred, transported, bequeathed, or sold. Getting these weapons off our streets and out of the hands of criminals means less violence. Now, this is a minority government, so just because something is introduced and proposed like this government's doing does not necessarily mean that it's going to pass. Uh, a lot can happen during minority governments. Uh, to talk about uh, what's going to happen in this session, uh, so pleased to welcome back to the program Amanda Connolly, a federal affairs journalist with Global News. Amanda, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us again. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Busy time there yesterday. Uh, we knew that the government, uh, Justice Mitchell Reddy and others, were talking about uh, doing something along these lines. Uh, so we got a, a, an inkling as to exactly what they're proposing. What was the reaction on the Hill yesterday to the Prime Minister's announcement? Well, as you can imagine, this, of course, is a, a big talker issue. There's a lot of different opinions about this. Uh, certainly a lot of um, a lot to digest in this legislation that was tabled yesterday. And as you mentioned there in your intro, really what this does is, is a couple of key things here, the, the big items in them being um, the, the, the introduction of, or details at least, on this kind of long-promised buyback program for what the government often refers to as assault or assault-style firearms, as well as giving more powers to municipalities to actually ban handguns within their own jurisdictions. Uh, and and the, the interesting thing here is that they're talking about giving federal penalties to individuals who are breaking those municipal rules. So it's really kind of a mixture of, of jurisdictions coming into play here and a pretty complex uh, proposal of, of items in this, this gun legislation. So certainly very wide-ranging. We did hear from stakeholders in terms of, uh, you know, with conservatives, with some sport and hunting groups as well who are concerned that this is, uh, this, this is not going to really stop violent crime, that this is targeting law-abiding gun owners. And, of course, feedback as well from gun control advocates, including a survivor of the Ecole Polytechnic shooting back in 1989, who is saying that this doesn't go far enough. So you're certainly seeing a lot of back and forth from different sides on this here. Um, and certainly, as you mentioned there as well before, the, the kind of backdrop for all of this being the minority government. So we're not sure if this can pass. We need to watch what's going to happen with the opposition parties and who is going to support this to get that legislation done. And uh, the process itself, of course, is painstakingly slow, especially in a minority government like this. Uh, is, is there going to be some regional disparity here, too? I mean, invariably, uh, any government in the past, I know the Paul Martin government tried to do something about handguns as well, to be in the, uh, the 05 06 election, uh, and they got smacked down as a result of that, because that, hey, they're taking our guns away from us, uh, is pretty loud, especially in, in some of the Western provinces. Yeah, and I think that that really is going to be reflected, uh, you know, again, if, if this passes, if this does become law, you'll likely see that reflected in terms of which municipalities actually take up these new powers that they would be granted for this. Uh, you can certainly think of a number of, of regions who have expressed a lot of interest in this, notably mayors and, and council members from Vancouver, from Toronto, for example, who have been vocally calling for more powers to get rid of handguns within their cities. Um, you've also heard a lot of a lot of reaction from, as you mentioned, there folks in the West who are saying this isn't a pro this isn't as much of a problem out here for us. We're we are really concerned about the um, the provisions targeting the 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 other specific uh, you know kind of assault style weapons and things in that regard. So I think you're going to see a, a real mix if this does go into effect in terms of which regions are looking to actually use these powers, which ones perhaps um, don't feel the need to 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 try and seek those additional authorities. 
Well, and as I say, yesterday was just the introduction to this, so there's a lot of debate that's going to be happening, and who knows how this is going to end up by the time they finally get to a vote on it, if they ever do. Uh, as expected, though, when they finally got uh, back to work yesterday, Amanda, uh, vaccines, pandemic, of course, uh, some big issues. I know Jagmeet Singh and, and Aaron O'Toole are both hammering away at the government about uh, what they consider to be a rather lackluster vaccine rollout. Yeah, absolutely. And this really is the, the backdrop for all, all of the political debate that we're having here in Ottawa as the session comes back. Um, obviously, for, for, for all Canadians, this really is what's dominating the conversations, dominating the, um, their, their daily lives right now is the coronavirus pandemic and the fact that we are still waiting on vaccine rollout. We're seeing uh, concerns raised from the provinces about the speed of that rollout. And really, there's a lot of, uh, still a lot of questions about whether the government can hit that promised timeline. They're saying you know, repeatedly very clearly that they are confident that they can stick to that timeline that they've laid out of having vaccines available to every Canadian who wants one by the end of September. We're looking, though, at delays from, uh, you know, we've seen delays, pardon me, from from a number of the manufacturers who are coming in uh, for these initial supply shipments. And that's really raised a lot of questions that's led to um, uh, some criticism of the government by the opposition parties about whether they have a firm enough handle on this rollout, whether there is enough enforcement powers in the contracts that we have signed. And again, we don't know the wording of those contracts. Those have not been released publicly yet. And so it's really coming down to a lot of um, a, a lot of kind of whose word do you trust more here that we can actually get this done? And that that I think is going to be a really interesting perspective for Canadians moving forward. Well, and that was one of the more amazing elements, I guess, of the discussion, uh, was the Minister Anad basically told the media that uh, she didn't even know all the details about the contracts vis-a-vis, uh, you know, what kind of enforcement is there or penalties, uh, which begged the question, well, if, if she wasn't in on the negotiation, who was and, and who does know? Yeah, sorry, you're, you're breaking up a little bit there. Can you repeat that? Yeah, I was just going to say, last week, Minister Renan basically said that she wasn't even aware of, of the details of the contract and whether or not there were penalties for, for no deliveries, uh, which begged the question, if she doesn't know, then who does? Yeah, and so, I mean, part of the issue here that we're seeing is that um, Minister Anita Anand, the procurement minister, uh, has said that there, there are, you know, there are, there are kind of confidentiality clauses included in some of these contracts that uh, they aren't allowed to talk about the clauses in here. And so you're, we're really seeing this kind of balancing act by the government, I think, in terms of uh, trying to respond to the pressure and the criticism and the questions that they're facing and also um, saying that, you know, we don't want to do anything that would jeopardize any part of these contracts. Again, we don't know if, if there are clauses in there that, um, you know, if they are speaking publicly about the details here, would it void the delivery of the vaccines that the companies are sub- subject to? We just don't know. And so that that kind of uh, is is the, the real kind of um, tone of this balancing act that we're seeing here, of a very kind of cautious wording from the government. A lot of, again, un- understandably, um, opposition parties are pushing for more details because people want to know the answers to these things. And that, that really is the, the kind of uh, the part that keeps us all digging here is that we just don't know yet what the answers are on that. Was there any discussion at all? Because I know we talked about this last week about the announcement that uh, the, the government, for all intents and purposes, is, is sanctioning and, and supporting uh, Huawei investing millions of dollars through Canadian universities for research and development, which is information that probably is going to head right back to China, to Huawei. Uh, this is against the advice of the five eyes and a number of our, our allies in situations like this. Uh, and, and the government, it's actually kind of a, it's through a government agency, but I mean, obviously, they can't do that without the government's approval on this. But is there any pushback on that? 
Yes, China definitely is one of those topics that we are hearing a lot about here. And, and of course, this was true even before the break. Uh, we consistently are, are hearing a lot of concerns about this from the Conservative Party. We saw Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole yesterday saying that the government should be pushing harder to, to um, withdraw the or to, to get the Olympics moved out of Beijing in 2022, mm-hmm. that there is no justification for uh, this kind of continuing uh, relationship with, with China and also a lot of push for the government to come out and, and call the um, the actions that are being taken, the human rights abuses against the Uyghurs in China as a genocide. We did hear some interesting comments from Justin Trudeau about that yesterday. He was saying basically, you know, genocide is a very strong word. When it's used internationally, you have to make sure that all of the I's are dotted, all of the T's are crossed, that we're not watering down the, word, the, the use of this term, which of course is significant. Um, but certainly saying that this is something that the government and international allies are continuing to monitor, that they're looking at very closely, which when it comes to China, of course, any indication of, of what you're watching, that you are expressing concerns about something to do with China there is notable for the government because they are typically so cautious in their wording around China. And so it's all those kind of little indications and clues that we're, we're watching for to try and get indications of whether this, these concerns that are being voiced are getting through and whether they're being reflected in the government. There's another, I guess, piece of unfinished business that I know you were talking about before the break, and we're hoping, I guess, that they're going to get some resolution, and that's the assisted dying bill. Uh, of course, the history of that, people, I hope I remember that the, the, the courts basically smacked it down and said, no, it, it doesn't work, guys, you're going to have to revive it. So uh, they've done some work on that. They sent it over to the Senate. The Senate is not happy with it, and they're basically rewriting the bill, uh, which doesn't happen very often. Is there going to be any resolution to this? That's another big one that we're watching for right now. Um, of course, whenever the Senate makes amendments to or proposes amendments to to legislation, that legislation has to go all the way back to the House of Commons. And so uh, that's what we're seeing in this case. As you mentioned there, the Senate did make some changes to that assisted dying, um, those assisted dying rules. Uh, they sent it back to the House now. The government is going to have to decide whether they want to accept those recommendations and either modify the bill or put the bill through a second time as is and put it back to the Senate. We have occasionally seen when the government has refused to yield to Senate changes, the Senate does typically back down. Again, the context for that being that they are not elected, they are kind of meant to propose sober second thought, but they're not necessarily the ones who are creating um, the majority of this legislation. So that really is kind of one, one of the other big topics that we're watching for. Again, because this isn't, this isn't an, an issue with a court deadline on it, we know that the government has been told you need to fix this bill by the courts. And so that that is certainly a, a very um, significant and, and hot issue here as well that we're watching going forward. Well, and exactly because of the way that the Senate has, has changed, I guess, over the last number of years, of course. You know, they're getting a little more rebellious, I guess, uh, with the, some of the stuff that's going over here. This whole idea that the Senate just rubber stamp whatever the, the Parliament said over, those days are long gone, aren't they? Yeah, that, that certainly is accurate. We, we do see a lot more. And again, we, we've seen this with... Um, the, the kind of backgrounds of the, the people who are coming into the Senate, they do tend to come from a lot more, uh, perhaps you could say a, 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 a diverse or a broader range of backgrounds than we have typically seen for Senate appointees who tend to be party donors and things of that nature. So we're seeing a lot of folks who, again, have long backgrounds, deep backgrounds in be it academics, in other fields, in meta, you know, a, a whole range of things. And so they are certainly coming in here and taking a very uh, sober second thought perspective, which is what they're supposed to do to a lot of legislation, proposing a lot of different ideas. And we do, we have seen a lot of cases where the government does adopt those recommendations. It's not by, by any means unusual 
for them to accept the modifications that the Senate proposes. And so we're certainly watching on, on this front, particularly with the proposals to advance directives uh, for medical assistance in dying. Those have been a, a, certainly a big concern for a number of parties and for senators as well as they debate this bill. And that, that really is kind of what we're, we're keeping an eye on here is, is where, where is the appetite to further amend this bill and will it, uh, will it move forward as is? Uh, one other thing here, as you said, there's a lot of things that they need to be doing here. Uh, but part of the process, of course, now that they're back to work, is uh, are the opposition days. And uh, we saw in the, in the last session, of course, uh, there was at least one vote of non-confidence that, that obviously didn't work out because uh, they got NDP support. But uh, Aaron O'Toole's running commercials on TV and radio these days. Uh, Jagmeet Singh seems to have... Uh, Say we say, uh, move back a little bit from the support that he was showing for the government on some of these other issues right now, and of course the Bloc have already said that they they just want to see an, an election anyway. Uh, is there any blood in the water here? Or is anybody going to try to pull the plug here? Would the government even do it themselves to to force an election? That's a million dollar question. Yeah, <laughs> no really kidding. That's, there's, there's no answer to that right now, but certainly you're right in saying that we are seeing this sort of heightened uh, heightened. Environment. There, we're seeing a lot of um, a, a lot of kind of indications that parties are positioning themselves at least to be ready in case an election does get called. We whether the government would pull the plug on that before vaccines are rolled out really is the big question. We've certainly seen provincial elections happen during the pandemic. The big thing here, though, of course, is these new variants and the the, the exponential rate of spread uh, of, of some of these new new variants of COVID-19 that are circulating. It's a different environment, I think, very, very, very much than what we've seen for a lot of provincial campaigns in the previous year. This is a, a whole different calculation when you're talking about putting the entire country um, out to the polls in the middle of a, a pandemic that is getting, from all indications, uh, potentially more risky with these new variants circulating. And so we are definitely seeing more rhetoric. We're seeing more preparations, perhaps, but we're also seeing uh, certainly certainly from the government the wording uh, that they, they want to avoid an election, that they are not going to call one, um, or that they're, they're not right now looking at calling one themselves. And so when, when that will happen, whether that will change, of course, is, uh, is why we cover politics. It's, it's, yep. uh, it's always fascinating. Well, it is, especially, as you say, because of the dynamic right now. Uh, the latest polling that we've seen uh, indicates the Liberals still have a lead, but it, it shrunk significantly, I guess, probably because of the vaccine rollout and some other issues that are at play here, certainly. Uh, so to that point, I mean, we, we can only speculate, but an election probably wouldn't solve anything. I mean, if, if you know, the old thing, they always start this off, if an election were held today, we'd probably end up with another Trudeau minority government. Yeah, I think part of the part of the thing here is that you know really any polling that's coming out at the moment is the dominant issue in people's minds is really vaccine rollout. You know, I think yep. you're certainly looking at that as when they're, when they're talking about support or confidence in the government, it, you really can't untangle that from how well do people think the vaccine rollout is going. And of course, right now we have had some stumbling blocks, we have had delays, um, so it certainly is not unusual to see that those those numbers narrowing perhaps between the parties. What I think will be really interesting is once we get into end of March, April, May, when we start to see some of this wider uh, wider delivery and wider ramp up of vaccine rollout, if they can kind of hit those targets and they're, they're giving an indication to Canadians that they are actually on track at a large scale to hit the deadlines that they've promised, you, you might, you know, it might not be surprising to see those numbers widen again and that gap open back up. But again, I think right now all of that is really hedging on where the vaccines go and how well they get rolled out. Absolutely. It's going to be a busy session. Always uh, great that you can take some time and talk to us about some of this stuff, Amanda. Thanks so much for this.
Always a pleasure. Thanks so much. Take care. Amanda Connolly, of course, Federal Affairs Journalist with Global News. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.